Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Often, those who suffer from anxiety either exhaust themselves trying to cure it or they resign themselves to a lifetime of fear and worry. But according to today's guest, Dr. David Rosemarin, instead of fighting anxiety, we can learn to turn it into a strength. He joins us today to discuss how we can use anxiety as a tool to be more self-aware, self-accepting, and resilient. Dr. Rosemarin is a board-certified clinical psychologist who is the founder of the Center for Anxiety, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. He's the author of the book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Welcome, Dr. Rosemarin. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Doctor, so many people suffer with anxiety, and when it happens, it can be debilitating. So when we are experiencing anxiety, what is actually happening in a body? It's a great question. Anxiety definitely can be debilitating. It is not always a strength. But if we have the right tools and strategies, we can turn it into one. So just to clarify that right up front. Um, in terms of the body, the fight or flight uh, response is what's triggered when we have anxiety. And uh, there's a whole uh, host of physical symptoms, including our heart rate increases, our pupils dilate in our eyes, our uh, breathing rate increases, we get more tense. And all of that is a mobilization effect to be able to handle whatever we're facing with uh, more uh, strength and capacity. So there's a purpose for flight or fight, but what happens then, because of whatever we're experiencing in our lives, we're staying in that state, and our body's not designed to be in that constant state. I'll tell you what I think is happening. My sense is that we become actually allergic to the fight or flight response. And when people start to feel anxious or tense, there's all this messaging around us in our culture, which says we shouldn't ever feel uncomfortable, we shouldn't ever feel sad or anxious or have distress. So then when the fight or flight response goes off, the immediate response is, oh my God, something's wrong with me. And of course, what that does is just makes the fight or flight worse and anxiety cascades. 
If we have this vicious cycle that goes on, we have the response and then more stress that triggers more response and we just stay in this loop. How do we get out of that? How do we break that cycle? Well, the first step is to recognize that anxiety is a part of life and it's an inescapable part of life as long as you're healthy. And I mean that literally. All healthy people will have anxiety at some point. And if our goal is to live entirely anxiety-free, well, first, it's not possible. But second, we'd be losing out on the tremendous opportunities that anxiety can provide for self-awareness, to connect with others, and uh, for resilience and many other things. So I think that's the first step and often the one that trips us up the most. So if two people experience the same situation, why do you think one person handles it in a way where they can kind of just brush it off and move on and it can become debilitating for another person? What is the difference between those two people? Great question. You know, I saw a study recently, which I think is more illustrative, and I think it can be used to answer your question. Um, There's a study in the Journal of Affective Disorders that crossed my desk Um, Changes in anxiety and depression in patients with different income levels through the COVID-19 pandemic. And what the authors predicted is that people with lower income would have had higher, greater changes in anxiety and depression and higher levels of anxiety and depression um, relative to um, uh, those with higher income. And what they actually found, very interesting, was we found statistically significant worsening of depression and anxiety in respondents with higher income levels. And we did not observe a a significant change in anxiety for those with low income over the same period. And, you know, reflecting on the study and, uh, you know, one of the one of the discussion points, which I think is a really important one, is that when when people have less opportunity in life and in some ways there's an advantage because what we're doing, what happens is there's a more accepting of uncertainty and a more accepting more greater acceptance of uncontrollability. When people have all the opportunities from birth, they're not used to it when things don't go their way. And all of a sudden during the COVID pandemic, when uncertainty was rampant, that could lead to a major fluctuations in anxiety. The, the word that kept going through my mind was resiliency. When, when like you had just explained, when things aren't as easy for you, I, th- I think you do have more coping skills and you can handle things better. Yes. And it's not to say that, uh, you know, the, the answer to the anxiety epidemic is to give up our, our riches. Right. <laughs> but, um, it, but, it, but what I think we can learn from this and many other studies, which I think are showing the same thing, is that we need to accept that we're not in control and to learn that that is a part of being resilient. Um, and that's what anxiety is about, learning to let go, to tolerate what's happening next. That is, a, that is the main lesson in many ways. I went through a lot of, of trauma at the start of the work I'm doing now, literally in a period mm-hmm. of five months. My mother died, my sister died, my 23-year marriage ended, and my oldest son left for college. So I lost everything wow. that I knew. Wow. And um, and I was in a bad place. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be really honest. I wasn't in a good state right. back then. But I always wondered why I was able to get through four major losses in a short period of time when any one of those things would have devastated someone else. And and to be honest, you know, that's why I asked that question of you, because I didn't know if some of it was just learned behavior. Some of it was innate. But I was able to navigate it, but it did lead to a really increased level of self-awareness for myself. 
I wouldn't know the things about myself had I not gone through that. So can you just kind of explain to us what anxiety can teach us, how it can help us if we let it? That's exactly what my book is about. Um, and I think, you know, your story is just so poignant. Um, uh, shows that a, a change in attitude really can change your life, if I might. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, and, and doctor, uh, that's why I started this brand. brand. And, and it really wasn't, <laughs> and there was no thought behind it, if I'm going to be really honest today. It was just, I knew I had to get my head in the game if I was going to survive. And those words just popped into my head, change your attitude, change your life. It really does make all the difference. Um, now, are there predictors of that? Potentially some, but ultimately, you know, this is something that um, some people have uh, had the guidance to be able to do. I don't know who taught you that message when you were younger or maybe when you were, you know, older or what it was. But I think one of the issues is that we don't have this messaging is not when it comes to anxiety. That's not the typical message. The typical message is this is a disease. We have to treat it. We have to get rid of it. We have to make it smaller. And I don't think that's the right, uh, the best. Um, most adaptive message. I think instead the messaging is let's change our attitudes, let's change our perspectives, let's change our behaviors. Let's get the tools that we need in order to not only get reduce this, but actually turn it into a strength and something that is happening for a reason. So if so much of our reaction to what we experience in life is in our subconscious, it's stuff that we learned years ago without even realizing we were learning it, how do we then turn it around? How do we become more conscious? Well, we need to have concrete tools and skills to be able to do this. And I'll give you one one example. When people get anxious, they usually end up in, an, many people I should say, end up in an anxiety spiral. The spiral starts with a perception that the anxiety is dangerous and that they have a disease and that something's wrong with them. That, of course, makes the anxiety worse. The second aspect of it is a catastrophizing where, oh, no, this is going to be with me forever. I'm not going to be able to handle this. And those two thoughts. The first one, something's wrong with me, the sort of judgment of oneself, if you will. And the second one, the catastrophizing, they make anxiety substantially worse. And instead, simply holding in mind, this anxiety is here for a reason. It's part of my fight or flight response. I was built to have anxiety. And it's, it's, there's, there is some way that this is not a catastrophe. This is not the end of the world. It does not mean I'm diseased. I simply have to learn how to harness it. That simple messaging is a tool. That is something that people don't usually use and don't usually tell themselves, but turning that anxiety downward spiral um, into something even more positive, I think is, uh, is a key first step. So in your book, Thriving with Anxiety, you talk about nine tools that can help us make anxiety work for us. Would you briefly take us through those tools? Well, I'll give you I'll give you one um, which comes up early in the book. It's in chapter three, which is that sometimes we need to face. Many times, in fact, we need to face our fears and face what's making us anxious and stressed. And what happens amazingly is that the body will adapt, and your anxiety will come down on its own. Now, this is something people don't often know. The fight or flight response is uh, caused by uh, adrenaline, um, which goes immediately into the bloodstream when people um, feel uh, a, people perceive a threat. And uh, that's called the sympathetic nervous system. But right away, the minute, second, that your sympathetic nervous system goes into gear and starts to pump adrenaline into your blood, 
and you start to feel those anxious response, there's something else that happens, which is called the parasympathetic response. And what that is a, is a cooling system. And it always, it will go off unless there's something, you know, neurologically or, uh, you know, endocrine, somebody has an endocrine problem or, you know, with rare exception, those two will go off together. But the parasympathetic system, the one that cools you down, is much slower acting. So that one could take an hour to take an effect. The sympathetic nervous system happens right away. So naturally, your anxiety will go down on its own. It will naturally come down. And for that reason, when we face our fear, you can be guaranteed that eventually it's going to crest and it will start to plummet. And the parasympathetic system will, will kick into gear and you'll be able to feel that calm down the road. But that happens the best when we calm ourselves, when we um, accept. Um, instead of trying to sh shove down our anxiety, we simply accept it's going to be what it's going to be and, and uh, actually go ahead and face our fears as opposed to running away from them. And so many of us, doctor, we live in a constant state of fear. We're afraid of everything. What if I can't make enough money? What if I can't do this? What if I can't do that? What if I fail at this? That's really the, the story we write for ourselves on a daily basis. Yes. And with those thoughts going through one's mind, um, it seems like it's impossible not to feel anxious. But the answer to that is, well, what if we face the fear and actually think through what would it really be like to not make as much money or to be grappling with a certain crisis. Usually people stop short as opposed to really accepting what's going to be and the way that they feel. And one of the key strategies is to learn to tolerate uncertainty better by acceptance, by not trying to shut off your anxiety. I recently read a really wonderful article about if-formations, and it says that we should ask those types of questions, the what-ifs, because our brains love to solve problems. So it's almost like staying in that, that state of maybe or possibility. What if this were to happen? Because it's things we never consider. We're always thinking the worst will happen, but it's making that switch to saying, well, hey, what if this were to happen? And, and that would make a, a really big difference, as you just said. Yep. When we uh, don't uh, handle it, when we try to get shut off the anxiety valve right away, then we're, we actually close ourselves off to all sorts of possibilities. And so, Doctor, I know there's a place for medication in in the lives of yep. some people, without a doubt. But do you think we're an over-medicated society? Anyone who experiences any type of anxiety gets put on a med. Do you think that that's the right approach to take? Firstly, I agree with you that there certainly is a time and a place for medications. And also, not all medications are created equal. There are different, not only types, but actually classes of medications that work completely differently on different uh, neurotransmitter systems within the brain. So um, just want to put it out there that, you know, obviously there is a time and a place for certain medications for certain individuals. And uh, I would even say many, or if not, you know, most individuals who need anxiety treatment might require some medication at some point. However, I don't think it's a good thing that a doctor's office a doctor's visit um, with uh, 10 minutes of assessment when a patient comes in and says, hey, I'm feeling anxious, and then they walk out with a prescription for Xanax. I don't think that's responsible medicine. I think that's made the anxiety epidemic substantially worse. And uh, instead of giving people an opportunity even to reframe their anxiety, to learn how to deal with it, what we've done is actually made them more allergic to their anxiety because what we've essentially done is sent them the message, something is wrong, and this they can't function with high levels of anxiety, which is not true in many cases. 
and you're not getting to the root of the problem. So would the goal then maybe be if someone does get medicated, then to make lifestyle changes, is, is there a chance they can get off the medication? There is if they want. And in many cases, that does happen. Um, but, you know, medication to me is to be used when people either don't have access to psychological treatments, they don't um, have uh, either the funds or they don't have the insurance that will be able to cover those types of treatments. They might not have the time to be able to uh, work on this. And I mean, literally cannot have the time. Like for the next three months, they're, you know, uh, on a major project and it's impossible for them. That's not a great situation, but it does happen. If they're going through a medical crisis, it's very hard to deal with, you know, your anxiety as well. You know, I understand those kinds of situations. And the other thing is that anxiety can be used in tandem in many cases with psychotherapy and with self-study and all sorts of strategies to make anxiety a little bit less, but not entirely gone away. And then we can learn to tolerate our anxiety over time, leading to the outcome that you mentioned before, which is eventually hopefully getting off of medications if people choose to do so. And I think what the exciting message in your work is, doctor, you know, when we experience anxiety, everything feels so outside of our control, like there's nothing we can do about it. But like you said, if we're willing to do the work and make some of these important changes, I think we have a lot of power over it. You know, the irony is that the more we accept that we're not in control when it comes to anxiety, the more control we have over it. So uh, that's a double-edged sword. Um, You know, the messaging around control that I really try to emphasize is to let go. And um, once we do, you're right, we do regain control. The boomerang comes comes right back around. But we got to throw the boomerang pretty far and uh, really watch it travel and have faith that it'll eventually come back. And I like Not an that, easy process. Well, and I like the concept of letting go because that's something that I tried years ago when I was starting to be afraid of everything. I finally just sat back and said, oh, just come and get me, you know, get me. I'm here. And the minute I said, come and get me, nothing came to get me. (laughs) That's exactly it. That's exactly one of the messages that that we need to start telling ourselves and others. And so, Doctor, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Um, My author's website is dhrossmarin, my last name, dot com. And there's information about the book. And once again, the book is Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Doctor, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. What a pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, it 
it's your time to shine. I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Hypnosis and hypnotherapy use guided relaxation, intense concentration, and focused attention to achieve a heightened state of awareness. Joining us today to talk about hypnotherapy and its benefits is Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner and founder of Metro Hypnosis Center and A Path of Peace, located in Oradell, New Jersey. Mary is the author of Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for having me. So, Mary, I just mentioned two terms in the introduction, hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Is there a difference between the two? Joan, that's a great question. Hypnosis and hypnotherapy work together. Hypnosis is what the introduction to the hypnotherapy would be. So hypnosis is really relaxing you, saying positive thoughts into the mind, getting to that deep, relaxed state. Hypnotherapy is the deeper work where we're looking within to really clear the blocks. So Mary, when we hear about hypnotherapy, we think of the times that we may have seen someone being given a suggestion like barking like a dog or following other types of commands. And that scares people. They think they're going to lose control. I know that was the case the first time I was coming to you for a session. I was Googling it the night before because I had no idea what you were going to do to me the next day. So can you explain hypnosis to us and how it works? And Joan, you're not alone in that thought. Most people come to me a little unsure of what hypnosis really is going to be. And I like to explain hypnosis just like a daydream state. I like to break it down to something we all do every day. So when we're in a daydream state, we're focused on that thought, but we hear everything in the background. That's very similar to hypnosis. It's just a little deeper, but just like in a daydream state, you're aware, you hear everything that's going on, and you are in control. So you can't make us cluck like a chicken if we choose not to. Exactly right, Joan. You won't cluck like a chicken unless you want to. So if you took 20 people on stage, a few of them will do the antics, whatever it is, because they're okay with that. But most of us wouldn't. So we'll just sit quietly by the side or they'll just kind of push us off the stage because they're only going to focus on the people who are open to doing the antics they ask. So studies today are showing that hypnotherapy has many benefits. Can you share some of those benefits with us? Joan, I'm so excited to share the benefits of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. It is really unlimited in what you can do with this work. If you just want to get into positive mindset, which is very important to change, that could be just phase one of it. But if you have traumas or you have fears or phobias that you need to release to move forward, then this work is just wonderful to do that. It's so beneficial with grief, with anger, with sadness, with anxiety, with stress, sports hypnosis, medical hypnosis. That's why I call hypnosis unlimited. And Mary, is it safe? Joan, it's very safe. The only thing I would just recommend for people is to make sure uh, the person you're working with has the training, the proper training, but it is very safe and effective work. And there's no side effects of like the drugs would give you. So it's all natural and it's really about clearing the mind. What type of person would be a good candidate for hypnotherapy? You always tell me that I'm able to go in very easily. So is there something about me that makes me a good candidate? 
most people can go into hypnosis and most people have experienced it on some level, whether it's a daydream or if you're driving somewhere and you get somewhere and you don't realize how you got there. You're in a hypnotic state. So most people can do it. Sometimes it's the openness or the fear if you don't want to lose control or something like that. But I always um, meet with people beforehand and chat, talk to them and make sure they're educated on what it is. So then when they do the work, they are confident and comfortable with the process. That's really what it is, is educating people on the process, making sure they're comfortable with it, and then they can relax and, and go into that relaxed state. So part of your goal is to empower people to be able to do self-hypnosis. What is self-hypnosis? And would someone like me or, or anyone who's doing this, would we be able to get the same benefits that we would by working with a professional like you? Joan, self-hypnosis is just a relaxed state. I call it a shortcut to get into the meditative state. So all we're doing with self-hypnosis is really teaching you how to clear the mind. And when you clear the mind, then you can go into that relaxed state because that's what hypnosis is all about. There are many benefits to doing the self-hypnosis, and you can certainly do that on your own. But you would need, if you want the deeper work that hypnotherapy can give, then you need the professional. But everyone can learn to be calm, to clear that mind, and get into that peaceful state, which will benefit everyone. Can you teach us something now that we would be able to do on our own? I think the breath is the biggest thing to show people. It's the beginning of a lot of my inductions for people in hypnosis. But the breath, we, we all know about breathing because we're breathing all day. But what we're doing is taking short breaths, and it's not relaxing us. But I think of a breath like a pause. So I always use the breath when I'm dealing with weight loss, smoking, or any other issue where we need to take that pause in life. So if you all just would sit on a chair, have your um, get comfortable in the chair, and all you have to do is take a nice deep breath in, and you want to let your belly really come out with the breath. So you just would breathe in through the nose, so we can just do that now. And you want to let that belly out, and now you want to breathe out through the mouth. And you can practice this. You can do this four or five times, six times. You could do it once. It's a great thing. Let's say you're going to have a public presentation today and you're a little nervous. You can be in the conference room. You can be waiting to be called and just take that breath. So it's usable in anything that you do that you need a little more calm and peace for the day. So Mary, you're the author of the new book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Joan, I call my book a beautiful book. It's written with love, compassion, comfort, and peace. My book, of course, teaches people how to do self-hypnosis and educates them on hypnosis. But what's special about my book is that each chapter is written in a letter format, so it allows me to be personal to you, my dearest one, who is the reader, who's, who's actually reading the book. So I share my story of how I had loss and how hypnosis helped me heal because there's such healing in hypnosis if you allow it to happen, if you're open and ready for it. And that's what my book shows by my story and how I truly transformed. I changed my life 360 degrees and hypnosis was part of that because a big part of this is creating the positive thoughts, creating that positive mindset. And I didn't realize how negative I was before. 
I changed my life with clearing the mind, creating positive thought, and then moving forward. A lot of people are stuck, and this book shows you how you can move forward on your journey in life. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about Mary and her work, or if you'd like to get a copy of her new book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, you can visit her websites, metrohypnosiscenter.com or apathofpeace.com. Mary, in our final moments, what would you like to leave our listeners with? I'd like to leave the listeners with the thought of hypnosis, that it brings such calm, relaxation, and peace into your life and to be open for the unlimited possibilities because that's what you tap into when you tap into hypnosis and your own self. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. On a personal note, you have helped me on my journey. You've helped me manage grief. You've helped me to move through a lot of different situations that I've encountered in life. And, you know, at first, as I said, I was skeptical about hypnotherapy. I didn't know a lot about it. But, you know, I did my research, I've worked with you, and it really has had a profound impact on my life and on my healing. So again, if you'd like to get more information about Mary, please visit MetroHypnosisCenter.com or apathofpeace.com. Mary, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How often do you think about the projects you started and left unfinished? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and creator of The Sound Life, an app for stress reduction through relaxation and meditation with sound and music. Many people keep a to-do list, meticulously writing down what needs to get done and crossing off each completed task as they go. But even if you do not maintain a to-do list, your mind is doing it. Your mind keeps track of every project started but never finished. When you orient yourself to new projects, the mind automatically recalls what is yet to be completed. It's called the Zygarnik effect, and it can drive stress by creating strain through intrusive thoughts reminding us of things left unfinished. There are only two ways to avoid the Zygarnik effect. Complete unfinished business or consciously establish that it no longer needs to be done. Wouldn't it be nice to think clearly about new things without the constant intrusion of thoughts of things left undone? To clear your mind, you must relax. I'm Allison Ayati, and I want to help you relax and clear your mind so you can consciously choose to let go of things you no longer need to do. Go to livingthesoundlife.com. The Sound Life is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Living with a narcissist can be challenging, but when that person is your parent, it can damage your emotional growth and the ability to trust. Joining us today to talk about how we can understand and heal from narcissistic family abuse is Dr. Carol McBride. Dr. McBride is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treatment of trauma. She is the author of several books, including Will the Drama Ever End? Untangling and Healing from the Harmful Effects of Parental Narcissism. Welcome, Dr. McBride. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Let's begin by defining a narcissist. What type of person would fit that description? 
Okay. Um, so first of all, we, we have to look at narcissism, I think, as a spectrum disorder. So um, I'm going to talk about the nine traits that are in the diagnostic statistical manual of a full-blown narcissist. But I think we have to keep in mind that because it's a spectrum disorder, there's a continuum, right? So at the low end of the continuum, as you think about these traits, we can all have some of these traits. And then at the other far opposite end is the full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. So the more traits someone has along the continuum, you know, the more problems they're going to have in their parenting, relationships, life, etc. But the uh, diagnostic manual lists nine major traits of the personality disorder. So I'll just give them to you quickly. Um, one is a grandiose sense of self-importance. Two is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Three, believes they are special and unique and should only associate with high-status people or institutions. Four, requires excessive admiration. Five, has a sense of entitlement, like unreasonable expectations of others or favorable treatment or automatic compliance with what they want. Uh, six is interpersonally exploitative, meaning taking advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seven, the big one, lacks empathy or the ability to tune into the emotional world of others. Eight is envious of others or believes others are envious of them. And nine shows arrogance, haughty behaviors, or attitude. So if a person, you just described nine traits, how would you know if a person is a narcissist? Because any one of these, most people have at least one. So how then can we tell if we are dealing with a narcissist? Yeah, that's a good question, Joan, because I, I, think, there, I think there's sort of a general understanding of in, in the way people talk about narcissism in, in our culture. And a lot of people think it's just someone who's boastful or arrogant or they, they're all about me. They talk about themselves all the time. And, you know, those things are annoying, certainly, but they're not the things that bother me or what I write about particularly because they don't, that's not what really hurts people. You can just stay away from those kind of people. But... Um, I think the real cornerstone and the red flags to watch out for is the lack of empathy and the inability to tune into the emotional world of other people. Um, those two things, I think, are the biggest. I also think um, sense of entitlement and interpersonally exploit, exploiting others are, mm -hmm. are two other big cornerstones. You know, doctor, when, when we talk about narcissism, we always or we usually tend to refer to it as someone we're in a relationship with. And I had never really given thought about having a narcissistic parent. And as you're talking, I can't even imagine what it must be like for a child to grow up with a parent that lacks empathy for that child. Yes very hard to get your head around, <laughs> particularly if you haven't lived it, right? Mm -hmm. But the mantra in what I call the narcissistic family, which means being led, the family being led by one or two narcissistic parents, the mantra is the parents' needs take precedence over the children's needs. So in a, in a normal, healthy family, you know, the parents are there to take care of the children. In the narcissistic family, that hierarchy is reversed and the children are there to take care of the parents to make the parents happy to make the parents look good um, 
So for little children growing up with the lack of emotional tune-in and empathy, you know, leaves them with lots of devastating effects, which is why I wrote this book. Doctor, what do you believe is at the root cause of narcissism? I think it's caused from the trauma the parents had. And I often get the question, well, does that mean that any of us who grew up in a narcissistic family or had a narcissistic parent, does that mean we're all going to be narcissists? And the answer to that is no. But usually it is caused from trauma. And then if people don't wake up or embrace that, embrace that trauma, a lot of people parent, as you know, probably, um, the way they were parented. And so that's why we see it kind of getting passed down the generations because, you know, they don't stop to think, do I really want to do the same thing to my kids that was done to me? What type of emotional damage happens to a child who doesn't get the nurturing that he or she needs in order to become a healthy functioning adult? Well, they end up with internalized negative messages like I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm not worthy. Um, they grew up with kind of a sense of emptiness because they didn't get their emotional tanks filled. Um, they grew up with crippling self-doubt because their feelings were not validated and acknowledged and their, therefore their reality was not acknowledged. Um, oftentimes we see adult children of narcissists uh, having complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Definitely a lack of sense of self. Um, oftentimes people come to therapy with this issue, have anxiety because they didn't grow up in a consistent environment, depression, hypervigilance, shame because they carry the family shame because they, they think it was all their fault. Um, they have difficulty trusting because they have impaired trust because they couldn't rely on their parents to take care of them properly. Um, oftentimes they have problems with relationships and definitely an impaired emotionally, emotional development, um, emotional development delay, not necessarily, um, not, not completely suppressed, but um, impaired. So because these children grow up to have that lack of emotional development, I would think that they might even become people pleasers or wanting to take care of people because that's what they know. Are they more apt to attract a narcissist into a relationship? Yeah, that's a good question, too, because I, I believe that when we grow up in a narcissistic family, we learn it's, it's great training ground for codependency. And codependency is, I'm going to take care of you to the exclusion of taking care of myself. So oftentimes, adult children will be, you know, have that level of uh, codependency that they have to work on in treatment. And then do they attract narcissists? Yes, sometimes that's the case um, because we tend to be attracted to the familiar until we work our own recovery. And a narcissist can be extremely charming. Absolutely. That's where, you know, in recovery, you really work on learning what to watch for and learning for the, you know, what to, what red flags, you know, to, to be aware of. And what are some of those red flags, doctor? Well, again, I always go back to the lack of empathy, the inability to allow someone to be themselves, the inability to tune into someone else's feelings, 
always wanting control, always wanting things to go their way, you know, as well as some of the grandiosity. Is the first step in recovery and and in healing, is that to recognize that your parents were narcissists? Yes, I, I don't think we can really do this recovery unless we accept that something wasn't right, that this parent has a disorder, and that's why the person was treated that way. Um, because they can't, people can't really move into um, the trauma work, the grief work, the you know rebuilding sense of self work, um, if they don't really understand where it came from. They they just think there's something wrong with them. Do you think the parents are even aware of their behavior? I, I would say yes and no. I think there are some narcissists who who are they know that. They're hurting you. Um, They want to hurt people in some way because of their own issues, their own self-loathing. And then I think there are some some traits that a narcissist doesn't recognize, like projection, because a narcissist doesn't deal with their own embrace and deal with their own feelings. They project them onto others. So, you know, if I'm the narcissistic mother and you're the daughter and I'm, I feel angry and I'm not dealing with my anger, I may be saying, Joan, why are you acting so angry today? <laughs> you know, they just, they project. And I'm, I'm not sure they're aware of those projections. I know this is a, a strong word to use, but do you think that this is a form of child abuse? Yes, I do. It's emotional and psychological abuse. And, of course, narcissists can also be physically and sexually abusive as well. So this type of abuse would go unrecognized. If a child were to go to a counselor and the parents look like they're these charming, wonderful parents, how does a child get to be believed in that situation? That's a really good question. The the therapist has to know what to look for, you know, to see does this child, how comfortable is this child with expressing feelings? And really talking about what's going on with them, can they even identify feelings, you know? Or are they coming from a family where you don't have feelings, you know, mm-hmm. because you're there to conscript to the mold of what the parent wants you to be. So this is why oftentimes people don't figure this out until they become adults. And, and you know, an interesting twist on that, if I might, um, a lot of times people come to treatment as adults after they have their first child. Because all of a sudden, they feel this incredible, unconditional love for this baby, you know, like I take a bullet for this child. And then it dawns on them, like, well, who had that for me? How does someone get through that? Well, I divided this book into three parts. Um, And the third part, the first part is just understanding it all. The second part is understanding the effects it had. And then the third part of the book is the recovery program. And when I figured this out years ago, um, I I started working on a five-step recovery program that I just have enhanced greatly in the third part of this book. Um, So, you know, I see five steps to kind of working through this kind of trauma. Would you briefly share those five steps with us? The first step we call acceptance and grief. By grief, I mean embracing the trauma. So in step one, we're accepting that the parent had a disorder, wasn't okay, and then then we have to work through the trauma and process and feel the trauma. And that takes 
quite a while to do. Um, then we work on separation individuation, which is step two. And what that means is we have to separate ourselves from this dysfunctional family web um, psychologically, not geographically. And step three, and of course there are a lot of things we do in all these steps. Step three then is I didn't get to build my own sense of self as an adult child, so step three is um, now I get to become my own authentic self. Then when we get to step four, we deal with now how are we going to deal with this family, our narcissistic parent, maybe the enabling parent, maybe the siblings. Um, are we going to we make a, a contact decision, you know, are, are we going to go no contact because it was too toxic? Are we going to do what I call civil connect, which is superficial, but we still have a connection? Um, and we learn how to set boundaries um, so we can deal with them differently and not be so reactive to them. And then the last step is ending the what I call the legacy of distorted love. Um, like, have I attracted narcissistic friends? You know, what's my value system in terms of parenting my children? And looking at love relationships and patterns and, you know, did, do, do I tend to be a dependent or a codependent in love relationships? And then finally, you know, looking at what, what traits did that person pick up themselves that they may want to really embrace and work on in recovery. So they're really working in the last step on ending the legacy. Doctor, for someone who's listening to you right now and is suffering in pain from that type of upbringing, what do you say to him or her? I say that, first of all, this isn't about hate, blame, anger. It isn't about going and attacking your parents. Um, I think this work is an inside job. I think we really have to embrace our own feelings about it and do our own recovery. I think recovery is extremely important. People can do it with the book because the third part has a lot of journaling and a lot of exercises to do on your own. Um, and then I usually encourage people if they can work those steps with a therapist, that's even better because then they get more validation, you know, and that's because of so much self-doubt. The therapist can really validate for them and say, that's not okay. That was not okay. So if someone is willing to do the work, there is hope for healing. Absolutely. And I would want anyone listening to, to really know that even though the work is hard, recovery changes your life. Doctor, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joan Herman. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, Tips to Be a Successful Sought-After Radio and Podcast Guest, I provide information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Emanuela Fasoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She's the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emanuela is here today to discuss fatty liver disease. Welcome, Emanuela. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure. So, Manuela, there's something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is really on the rise. And what this is, is it's when people have a buildup of excess fat in the liver due to causes that are unrelated to alcohol use. And it's been reported, as I said, that these cases are rising. Are you seeing more of this with your clients? Yes, I am. I actually had it myself and I did reverse it. So I do see that very often with many people. Why do you think this is happening? I've put a lot of thought into this. What happens is we have moved away from the whole food diets, right? A lot of people are eating high carb foods that are affecting the insulin production. They are not eating enough adequate proteins. They're eating a lot of fast foods. And this angers the liver in essence, and it really creates a lot of havoc in our body. I did an interview recently with a doctor who specializes in this area, and he said that if you are obese or insulin resistant, there's a good chance you have something going on with your liver like this. I agree 110% with that. You had said that you reversed this when you had it as well. What did you do and what do you recommend your clients do? What I did was I completely, number one, removed any alcohol. And not that it's alcohol-related, but despite the non-alcohol fatty liver disease being a liver condition independent of excessive alcohol use, alcohol can still add to the liver's burden, and it really should be avoided or removed. The second piece of it was really shifting my diet, and that was eating adequate proteins, right, and limiting the excessive carb intake, which helps to balance the sugar, and it it improves the insulin levels. And you also want to focus on having a full plate of colorful vegetables and lean, high-quality meats that are grass-fed, a lot of, you know, wild-caught fishes. Also, I did it with exercise. Now, exercise is a great way to improve insulin sensitivity. I got involved in, in doing interval training, weightlifting. I started to walk daily. The last piece that I added in was fasting. A lot of people have different ways that they fast. But for me, it was understanding that the liver, by a specific time, it starts to detox, right? The liver, the kidneys, the small intestines. That's the wheelhouse of detoxification. So for me, fasting was I would start eating my meals, and I still do this today, after about 11 o'clock in the, uh, in the morning. And then I will stop eating by around six o'clock the latest. And if I do get hungry afterwards, I'll maybe have some seeds or a piece of fruit. But that is it. But fasting truly is amazing. And I would recommend a 12 to 14 hour window. And um, that's really a, a, a way to what it does is the time restriction of feeding improves metabolism and it limits the excessive caloric intake, and it actually improves insulin sensitivity. If you would like to learn more about Emanuela and her work, you can visit embodyvitality.net. And as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Emanuela Fasoni. 
joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.